You're listening to a sermon podcast for a time like this from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O God, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Today's gospel reading is rough. I'm not going to preach on it, but it doesn't seem right to just read those words in our service and then ignore them. When the sermon text goes up on the website tomorrow, it'll include a link to a helpful commentary on the passage that points out that it is neither necessary nor always helpful to assume that any time a gospel story includes a king, that the king is God. Sometimes an earthly king is just an earthly king. For our second reading, the lectionary still has us working our way through Exodus. If you've ever tried to read the Bible like an ordinary book from start to finish, we've reached the section where it's very common to give up, because the text shifts from stories to a seemingly endless list of instructions. In this section of Exodus, God not only establishes the Ten Commandments, they also establish a detailed covenant with the people of Israel. Unlike the Ten Commandments, if this entire covenant was to be memorialized as a statue in Kildonan Park, it might take up the entire park. It's a very long and very detailed list. One of the longest lists of instructions focuses on how to build the tabernacle, the tent of meeting where God will meet with the people. The tent itself, and each item that it will contain, is described in exquisite detail. If you are a creator or an artist, this section speaks to how highly God values beauty and artistic expression. This covenant was established between God, Moses, and a collection of leaders of the Israelite people on Mount Sinai, and after that process is completed, Moses goes even higher up the mountain to be alone with God, and the other leaders descend to the mountain to be with the people. Moses stays on the mountain with God for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, sometimes numbers in the Bible are literal, and sometimes they're figurative, and we don't always know which is which. The number 40 can mean 40 literal days, or it can be used to signify a very long time. Moses is alone with God for a very long time. What are the people doing during this time? Tonight's reading begins, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Now in Everett Fox's translation, he notes that the Hebrew verb translated here as delayed has the connotation of causing shame or embarrassment. So he translates the opening sentence this way, now when the people saw that Moshe, that Moses, was shamefully late in coming down from the mountain, the people assembled against Aaron and said to him, Arise, make us a god who will be God before us. For this Moshe, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. I feel sorry for Aaron. Moses, the person who really should be in charge, is shamefully late. The people are angry 
and now they have assembled against Aaron and are making demands. This is not the position any leader wants to be in. So what is Aaron supposed to do? He could tell the people they need to be patient and wait for Moses. Or he could remind them that it's a bad idea to make an idol instead of following the one true God. Those would actually be wise choices to make as a leader, but they're not popular ones. They are likely to make the people even more anxious and angry, and you know that anger is going to be directed at you if you're Aaron. So do you do the thing you believe is right, or the thing that will make you popular with the people? Dr. Michael Osterholm is an American epidemiologist whose work I follow. He has a weekly podcast, and he's been advising the Lutheran Church in America on how to respond to the pandemic. He pointed out recently that we are beginning to see a shift from pandemic fatigue to pandemic anger. First, people were tired of the pandemic, and now they're increasingly angry at all the ways the pandemic is negatively affecting their lives. It's hard to get angry at something as abstract as a pandemic, however, so instead people are directing their anger at their leaders, at grocery store clerks, at family members. This seems to be what's happening with the Israelites. They had a sense of how long they thought Moses should remain on the mountain, and they were willing to wait that long. But now he's taking longer, and they're angry, and they're looking for a quick fix. The quick fix in this case is to build their own god out of gold. And Aaron does what the people want him to do. He tells them to take all of their gold rings and earrings, which both men and women were wearing at the time, so that he can melt them down and create a golden calf. I was wondering why they choose to, chose to use their jewelry in this process, and I suspect it's because all the other gold that they plundered when they left Egypt has already been used in the creation of the objects for the tent of meeting. Now when the people saw the golden calf, they declared, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. A feast day is declared, and the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to revel. The word revel has sexual connotations. This was a wild party, not a sedate worship service. And God is not pleased. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and of you I will make a great nation. The first thing I want to point out about God's reaction is that it's funny. It's terrifying, but it's also funny. This is a classic trope in comedy. When the kid or the dog or the co-worker is doing a good job, they're ours. But when they misbehave, they belong to somebody else. My dog has perfect manners. My dog never poops in the house or chews up the slippers. Mike's dog does. Mike, come here and see what your dog has done. 
We've just gone through pages and pages of stories and covenant building where God claims the people of Israel as their own, and now that the people have built a golden calf, suddenly these are Moses' people. When Moses responds to God, he will assert that these are not his people, they're God's people. Again, this is comedy gold. The second thing I want to highlight in God's response is based on the work of Everett Fox. Fox notes that the language of the original text implies that God is baiting Moses here. God wants Moses to argue with and defend the people. Argue with him and defend the people. This also is implied by how quickly God seems to change their mind. This is a test, and Moses will pass. So once again, we see in Scripture that it's okay to argue with God. And more than that, it's something God wants us to do. This test is not simply, will Moses choose to defend the Israelites and argue with God? That would be tough enough. But God adds a further temptation into the mix. But before we look at that, let me refresh your memory on the nature of Moses' relationship with the people of Israel at this time. It's not great. From the time Moses chose to leave his family and the life he had built for himself in Midian to free the people from enslavement and lead them to the Promised Land, we have seen story after story after story of Moses working hard, doing what he promised to do, only to receive harsh criticism and complaints from the people. There are so many of these stories that biblical scholars have created a category for them. They're called complaint narratives. I'm sure that more than once by this point, Moses has thought, well, if you don't like my leadership, fine, I quit. And here God is offering him an out. God is going to destroy the people, which means Moses won't have to lead them anymore. God will give Moses the very thing he wished for. But Moses digs deeper than those very real, but ultimately surface-type feelings that emerge when you feel unappreciated to a deeper place where his love for the people resides, and he argues passionately on their behalf, which is amazing in and of itself, but I haven't even mentioned the additional temptation that God has placed before Moses. God says, now let me alone, so that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them. And of you I will make a great nation. Moses will no longer be the leader of a stiff-necked people. Moses will be the patriarch of a great nation blessed by God. That had to be tempting. But instead of taking the bait, Moses defends the people and argues with God, explicitly reminding them of the covenant with Abraham, and God changes their mind. I wonder if Moses, as he's walking down the mountain from this encounter, thought, wow, I had no idea until God threatened them how much I actually care for these people. I didn't know how much I loved them until I said it out loud. If you read ahead, you'll see that the people will be punished for creating the golden calf. It's a dark and difficult story, but they will not be wiped from the face of the earth, and Moses will continue to lead them. 
When I was a kid, I asked my grandmother why we, as Mennonites, didn't wear gold crosses around our necks like some of our friends from other denominations did. She explained if it took a piece of jewelry to identify ourselves as Christians, then we were doing something wrong. Our faith should be obvious from the way we live our lives. She may even have pointed to this story to show that it's wrong to create idols, or reminded me that we also kept our worship spaces free of imagery so that we would not fall into sin and could focus solely on God, but I don't actually remember her saying any of that. Her explanation made sense, and I lived most of my life following that advice. But now, I think it's fascinating that the story of the golden calf comes right after pages and pages of detailed descriptions of God's blueprints for how to create beautiful things to use in the worship of God in the tent of meeting. It seems to point to a middle way for thinking about the objects we create and use in worship. Idols? Bad. Don't make them, don't worship them. The use of beauty and beautiful things to help point us to God? Good. Do make them. Do use them. Do delight in the ways they help us connect with the God who created us and all the earth. This fall, we have a group of people who are meeting regularly both to study a book together, but also to explore the idea that God is everywhere and can be found everywhere if we only pay attention. That book is An Altar in the World by Barbara Brown Taylor. This week, I've been thinking about the idea of creating an altar in our homes. And I want to encourage you all to think about this too. I'm going to give you some examples, but this isn't a one-size-fits-all project. It's an invitation to think about your own unique space and your own unique needs. Although I've never thought about it as an altar until this week, in my home I usually sit in the same chair when I pray the daily office. Next to that chair is a table that contains a candle, incense, prayer beads, and my handheld labyrinth. My Bible and prayer book are also within easy reach. I can pray anywhere, at any time, but there is something about the way I have created this space that helps me enter into those times of focused prayer in a particular way. Do you have a space like that? How does it impact your prayer? If you don't have a space like that, what might it take to create one? It doesn't have to be fancy or expensive. Although I always pray in the same chair, I also use that chair for other things. I can't afford to have a chair that's only for prayer. Similarly, at the start of this service, we invite you to light a candle with us. Do you already do that, or have you ever thought about preparing the space where you join us for worship on Sundays? What might change in your experience if you thought about preparing yourself and your space for worship? What might change if you thought about what you are wearing? And here, cozy pajamas might just be the perfect choice. Or where you are sitting, or what you have nearby, a candle, or a good cup of tea. How might being intentional about those things impact this experience for you? Now, if these questions create any sense of guilt or obligation, please ignore them. 
because guilt is such a waste of time. But if they create a sense of curiosity and play, then play. Experiment this week and see what you discover. And I hope you'll let me know about it when you do. In the strong name of our triune God who creates and redeems and sustains. Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church, including further resources during these days of the COVID-19 global pandemic, or to provide support for our online work, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. Thanks for listening.